Everybody massage your temple, get your brain juice flowing. Do you know you have brain juice? Is that a good image? It's a good image. Why, why is it important that we share God? Why is it important that we share the truth about God? Why is it important that we share the substance of what we believe? Um, presumably it is. Uh, church traditions uh, have made uh, a big deal of that uh, over the centuries. Uh, why is it important that we share God uh, with people? Good. Talk among yourselves. I'm going you, to give you eight seconds to get to the bottom of it. Okay. Why is it important to share God? James. Because it's what God himself wants. All right, all right. Now, for extra credit, though, why does God want it? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. I'll give you a bookmark for that, James. So this one goes to James. All right, what else? For individuals to have freedom. So knowing God or knowing the truth about God results in freedom somehow. And God's in her. Okay, I'll give you. I know you want the floral one. Uh-huh. All right, one more, one more. That's a great answer. Somebody who doesn't usually answer. Somebody who's really shy and, and hates to talk in front of people. Annie. It's a result of an overflowing. If you don't share, it, the overflowing is going to be wasted. All right, the overflowing what? The overflowingness of being connected with God, I will accept that. You want, you want, uh, which? You want two. All right. Come on. Here, take this to Auntie Annie. Next week's sermon, greed. <laughs> I think about that every once in a while. I think about why it's important to share God. Uh, I think about, I think about uh, whether I am sharing God uh, with people, whether I am drawing, into peop drawing people into uh, the love and the truth, the knowledge of the character of God. And then I think about why that's so important it's important to God why uh, Scripture makes such a big deal about it. And then, of course, I think a lot about how to go about sharing God in a manner that's effective and changeful for the people around me. Sometimes I think strategically because I, I, I think culturally uh, there are some obstacles to sharing uh, faith uh, in God, sharing what I know about God and what I experience uh, in God. It's not, it's not cool. And uh, one, of the, one of the dominant criticisms that's out there is, uh, well, I mean, you know, that's, that's your faith, that's that thing, but your way can't be the only way. And for you to think that it is, that I have to join your way, that I have to join your religion or join your truth, is just arrogance. Uh, so get out of my face, man. Nobody's actually ever said that to me. Uh, People have said worse, um, like um, you're, just, you're just being uh, arrogant. So, uh, so I like to, you know, I, I, I think about that a lot and I think about how, how unbiblical uh, that is. Uh, there, there are two, 
two mindsets, I think, when it comes to sharing the truth about God. One is that there is a, there's a true religion. You know, this religion is called Christianity or something close to that. And if you're not, um, if you're not a, a Christian, if you don't join uh, my, uh, my religion, then you're not in. Uh, and worst case scenario, God, you know, has to cast you into hell and something like that. Um, and uh, this religion was invented in the first century AD uh, by this guy named Jesus, and we've been gathering people into it ever since. Does that sound about right? Uh, it's kind of like one dominant storyline that's out there, and that is entirely not what the Bible says uh, is the thing. The Bible says that at the beginning, God created uh, humankind, and then we blew it. Uh, basically, we didn't trust God. And maybe you know the stories. They're the oldest human stories in the world. They're the stories from the book of Genesis. Maybe you know these stories. They're the first thing that humanity tried to remember about itself. And the first things that humanity tried to remember about itself is that we didn't trust God. And we blew it. Some people call it the fall. We didn't trust God. Even though he was right there with us and he, his existence was obvious, we did not trust his character. And so what happens in the story is that God rearranges things. And now instead of being obvious, he's very unobvious. He's kind of removed himself from daily observation, uh, so to speak. And now what we have to do is, uh, whereas formerly we knew that God existed but we did not trust his goodness, now we have to trust his goodness before we can even know that he exists. And that's called faith. Trusting a God that you cannot prove exists. And all of human experience has been that. It's been an exercise in faith as we try to remember what we originally forgot about God, which is that God exists and that he's good. You know, scripture says, much, much later scripture says, uh, it's impossible to please God uh, without faith. You must believe that he exists and that he is good. And that has been the test of humanity ever since. Humanity has been trying to remember its way back to God, its way back to trusting relationship uh, with God. So something like this, inasmuch as we did not exercise trust in God, um, even though his presence and power were obvious to us, God removed his presence and power in a way, sending us out into the world alone, sending us out into human history on our own so that in trying to get back to him, we would have to exercise trust. We would have to. We would correct that thing in our development that we had screwed up at the beginning. We're trying to remember what happened as a race. Uh, but it's kind of like the game of telephone. Have you ever played that party game of telephone where you have like, you know, 20 people in a circle and one person, maybe they draw a little something out of a hat. It's like, I met a woman at the store who was wearing a, a red scarf and she was buying donuts. And then you whisper that story into the ear of the person next to you and only that person hears it. And then she whispers it into the ear of the person next to her in such a way that only the person next to her hears it. And then he whispers it into the ear next to him and so on. And it gets all the way around the circle. And then at the end of the circle, the last person tells the story, only it's nothing like the story that started. You know, it has drifted. And now the person says, uh, I bought a scarf at a store and fed donuts to a woman. You know, it, it gets kind of convoluted 
and messed up. And that's actually the story that Genesis tells. It said, humankind was trying to remember God, but we fell out of trusting relationship with him, and then all these various traditions got started. Some people worshiped their ancestors, it says. Uh, some people went over here and they did great things, but they fell into confusion. And it's like this huge game of telephone that's been going on for thousands of years. Now we have all of these various stories about God and they get interwoven and interlaid. If you look deep enough into most ancient cultures, almost everyone has a story about the one true creator God. And then a lot of them have little layered stories about other gods that have mixed in, and some of those gods look similar to each other, and some of them don't, and it gets weird. But, but at the very beginning, they all had this story, you know. The Hawaiians called him Io. Uh, the ancient Chinese called him, I'm gonna, not going to say this right, Shangdi. What's, right? How'd I, how'd I do? Shangdi? Shangdi. Kind of like the word Shaddai in Hebrew, yeah. Uh, transliteration of the word Shaddai. Like, all these cultures have it. We're trying to remember our way back. In, in, uh, in Genesis 14, uh, there's this hero of faith called Abraham. And uh, he's, he's moving into what would come to be known as the promised land, the land of Canaan. And he's, he's having to, to fight some enemy tribesmen or her, who are trying to wipe him out or trying to wipe out his relatives, his family. And he has a great victory. He's passing into the valley of Jerusalem, and he meets this guy named Melchizedek. Do you know this story? Melchizedek comes down out of Jerusalem and meets Abraham after his victory. Uh, Melchizedek is called uh, the priest of El Elyon, the priest of God Most High, of the one supreme God. You know, Abraham was still getting to know who God was at that point in his story, but Melchizedek was a priest of the one supreme God. I mean, humanity has always remembered this story, it's just that we've also kind of forgotten this story. And the Jesus faith, if you want to call it that, is just sort of a, it's a gathering together. It's a linchpin experience. It's, it's God trying to remind the world in a clearer way that there is a true story and that we need to accept it. Jesus was God with a face. Jesus was God on his own terms, a clarity, a revelation. And what we are really preaching here is the story of all humanity, that all of humanity has been trying to remember, but which traditions and cultures and overlays have confused over the millennia. And that's actually the story uh, that the, the Bible tells. You know, I don't know if you've heard it like that, but it's been a long and glorious story. That's all preparation to a passage today from Acts 17. We're in a sermon series on the life of Paul. Paul was an incredibly important figure uh, in the early church. He's probably the greatest missionary, the greatest church planter of all time. Um, Paul was, was uh, called uh, by, by God at a time when he uh, hated Jesus and Jesus' followers. Very dramatic story. Now he's on what uh, historians call his second missionary journey. Uh, Paul and his companions have taken the gospel into Europe. They've taken the gospel into Greece for the first time ever. Uh, 
uh, the Jesus faith has, has entered uh, Europe. And in a roundabout way, Paul has ended up in a city called Athens. Have you ever heard of Athens? Uh, there, there are two super important cities uh, in uh, mm, at least the history of the Western world. Uh, one of them, Jerusalem, which isn't actually a Western city, and the other one, Athens, uh, which gave birth to Greek culture, Greek philosophy, a lot that has influenced the way that we think and understand things today. So Paul's in Athens. Paul is in the heart of what would come to be called Western tradition. And he's by himself at this point, and he's walking around the city, and he's thinking about this. He's thinking about why is it important to share God? How does one go about sharing God? And here's the story. It's a little long. Bear with me. When uh, while Paul was uh, waiting for them in Athens, he was waiting for the rest of his team to show up, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Uh, these were two dominant Greek philosophies uh, of the day, um, and you hear, still hear a lot about Stoic philosophy. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I know some TV networks like that. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, the Areopagus, if you don't know the history, a very famous place. It's sort of the seat of philosophical debate in, in, in the seat of, of Greek philosophy, sometimes called Mars Hill. If you go to Athens today, you tour it. This is where all the, all the eggheads hung out in Jerusalem to talk about things. So Paul is sort of being invited into the university to give a lecture. That's kind of what's going on. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And now this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. It's not, he's not a temple guy. He's not a tradition guy. He's not a religion guy. He's God over all. And he is, uh, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives, everything, gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For one man... From one man, he made all the nations, or all the people groups, all the ethne, it says in Greek, all the ethnics, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, 
though He is not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is, is like gold or silver or stone, like all of these idols, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, or in the Greek, to metanoia, to, to change their thinking. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from uh, the dead. Sorry, I skipped something. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to, of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Whenever specific names are mentioned in the accounts of Acts, it means that these are the people that became leaders in the new church there. And so the, the local people would recognize the names. So Paul was successful in planting a church there the heart of, of Greek philosophy. Clearly, uh, Paul is sharing God here with the Athenians, the people who have no idea uh, um, who Jesus is. They've never heard anything like that, but Paul is explaining it to them. And very clearly, the way that he presents it is not as a religion they need to accept. He's presented it as a global truth that they need to remember. God has been over all peoples for all time. You just need to, to see it. You need to see him in your own story. You know? He says, you have suspected all along that there's something that you're missing. You have suspected all along that there's a God out there because you feel incomplete about him. I can tell because you have an altar to an unknown God right smack in the middle of your city. Archaeologists, incidentally, have discovered altar, at least one, to an unknown god on the Areopagus. So this may have been the altar that Paul was, was talking about. You've known. You've kind of known. You've sort of known the truth all along. That's his message to people. Like, I'm, I'm just going to reveal to you the truth that you've kind of had bubbling in your stomach all along. That's, that's, his, that's his method, you know. Look at your own story. And then he does a very clever thing. He quotes uh, from uh, a Greek poet philosopher, uh, a guy uh, from Crete. Uh, in, for in him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. He's quoting from a well-known Greek poet by the name of Epimenides. Everybody say Epimenides. It's fun to say. Um, if you're pregnant, Epimenides. Just file it away. That's all I'm saying. Um, and this is the poem. Uh, it's from a poem uh, written by a guy named Epimenides about 600 years earlier, more or less. Uh, and, the, and the poem was called Cretica. And it goes like this. They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one, 
those Cretans did. They're always liars, evil beasts with idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever now. For in you we live and move and have our being. What do you think of that poem? Interesting poem. I mean, it sounds like it could have been written about Jesus almost, right? Uh, what Epimenides was talking about, he's writing a poem to the Cretans. Uh, they worshiped a god named Zeus. Now, Zeus is a word that literally just means God. It's the Greek form of Theos in Latin. Zeus just means God. And the tradition was that Zeus, he was the god above all gods. He was the god that was so powerful that if all the other gods gathered together, Zeus would still kick their butt. God was God. Everyone else is just kind of a plaything. That was their tradition. But Epimenides looked at, at the Greeks of his day and said, you keep trying to kill God. You keep trying to forget God over God. You know, the main guy. Why do you do that? Because in him we live and move and have our being. A lot of you have, have memorized that verse. How many of you have that as a memory verse? In him we live and move and have our being. That was actually written 600 years before Jesus by a Greek, not, not by a believer. And Paul, Paul picks up on this. And he said, you guys knew that. And in fact, you have an altar to an unknown God. The story gets more interesting. It goes like this. Epimenides was most famous in Athens for being kind of the savior of Athens uh, about 580 years, 590 years uh, before this moment. Uh, Athens was afflicted by a terrible plague. And the people in Athens felt like they were being cursed by some god or another. And they didn't know which was the true one to try to appease, to apologize to. And so some bright guy said, well, let's consult Epimenides, who was a very famous philosopher slash prophet of the day. Uh, so they sent to Crete and they brought Epimenides, the author of this poem, to Athens. And the story goes that as Epimenides walked into Athens, he saw all the different idols, all the representations of all the different traditions that had slammed together in Athens. And, and when he arrived uh, in, in the chief council, he said, look, you guys are worshiping all these gods. Clearly, you're not worshiping the right one because the plague is still here. So we have to worship, wait for it, the one you don't know yet. That's how this thing got started. That may well have been where that altar came from. So Epimenides said, let's worship that one. Uh, the story goes, they released some sheep on, on Mars Hill. They released some sheep on Areopagus in the morning, and, and even though it was feeding time, uh, some of the sheep lay down and refused to move. So on those spots, they erected altars to an unknown god, sacrificed those, sacrificed those sheep, and within two weeks, the plague was completely gone. And so the Athenians had been celebrating this story for 600 years, remembering the poems of Epimenides. And when Paul showed up in Athens, he was like, I think I know what was going on. All along, you guys have had in the back of your cultural mind a recollection that all of these traditions, all of these idols, all of these practices, all of these religions were just shadows of a bigger reality. I'm going to tell you about the bigger reality. And then Paul did, at the end, a very important thing. He said, and if you can accept all of that, if you can accept can accept the creator God, the global God that has been active in 
all nations, all people groups, for all time, if you can accept that, then you need to accept it on God's terms. And that's what Jesus is for. Jesus is God with flesh, is God with a face. God has inserted Jesus into history and said, all right, now accept him, and now you're dealing with me on my terms. You know, you have, there has to be a decision point, and Jesus is the decision point. That's, that's who he is. That's what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. You need to accept him as a master of your life, the master of your life. That's how the mechanism works, if you want to call it that. That's, that's why. Because you can't accept God on your terms. That makes you God. And then you're just going to start forgetting again. You know, there, there needs to be a point of reality. You know, God with a face. You get it? And that's how God presents it. And then he said, and, 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 and how do we know this guy is so important? Well, he got raised from the dead. Remember when Epimenides say you keep trying to kill God, but he keeps coming back to life? This is that story made flesh. It's historical. It's not a theory. That's how God presented the gospel to Athens. What do you think? Cool? Not cool? Kind of interesting. He like said, this is what God has been trying to do in, in your story. Are you, are, are you willing to go with that? Are you willing to accept that? If so, we can get things started. And some people bought into it. Some people said, yes, I am willing to do that. And that was the beginning of, of the church in, in Athens. This, this is my favorite way uh, to, sh to share God. I mean, there, there's, I suppose there's no right or wrong way to share the goodness of God, the love of God, the truth about God. Uh, but, I, but I like to do it this way. I like to, to get into some sort of interaction with people and to look for evidence that God has been involved in their life all along. And then to kind of point out that evidence and to get the person to consider it. You know, have you not heard the call of Jesus in your life for years and years? Really? I, I think you have. I think you have. I think, I think deep down you know. I think there's a part of your soul where there's some space reserved for an unknown God or for a sort of God you know, when you ask people these days, uh, people who are not really followers, you ask them, well, do you believe in God? Then my experience is that almost all of them will say, well, yeah, I believe that there's something out there, something bigger, you know, maybe they're bold and they say something unknowable. Well, I mean, that's, that's the metaphorical version of an altar to an unknown God. People walk around with an altar to an unknown God in their hearts. That's what people do. And my job is to say, hey, let me tell you the story of why you have that thing in your hearts. It's my favorite way to share the gospel. You know, there are other ways to share it. You know, you can say, dude, your life is so messed up that you got to try something new. Give Jesus a shot. It's your only hope. And that can work. I mean, that, because... There are some messed up people. Everybody just, just very slyly turn to your left and turn to your right. And Yeah, there are some seriously messed up people in the world. And uh, if they don't get some miraculous Holy Spirit in their life soon, there's going to be trouble. Can I hear an amen? All right. So there's that. That's fine. 
that's fine. And I think for a while, particularly in this country, that's often how the gospel was shared. You're sinful. Let me help you understand how sinful you are. And then once you understand how sinful you are, I can give you some hope. And that's the, that's the, the methodology behind the standard American altar call of the last 120 years or so. And that, I mean, that, which is cool, you know, it's cool, but it's just not my favorite way, you know. And in this postmodern age, the postmodern age is really the ancient age, which is just like, you know, the Athenians and the Romans and almost everybody else, every other major civilization of this time, were like, hey, we'll accept whatever, man. We'll accept whatever, because the important thing is unity. The important thing is to hold it together. So you do your thing, I'll do my thing. We'll have idols all over the place for everything, and we'll just kind of be above it all. But we're still hungry. Still we feel incomplete, and still we carry around an altar to an unknown God in our hearts. This was 2,000 years ago. I, I, I think it's, it's the same thing today. Go on YouTube and, and, and type in something like God is dead in Western culture or something like that, and you'll see video after video after video about how God is dead in Western culture, and this time Christianity cannot rebound. Surely we are entering a post-spiritual age. I'm like, dude, 2,600 years ago, Epimenides was complaining that people were trying to kill God. You know, people have been trying to kill the truth of the one true God for thousands of years, thousands of years. Why? Because a true God is inconvenient. A true God is stressful. A true, a true God, I mean a God that you give a face to, a God that you get specific about actually demands response. It requires you to actually make a decision. And I would rather just kind of be fuzzy and soft about it and just kind of let that tradition die away and we can all just kind of be cosmopolitan and sophisticated and accept everything and just kind of coast through life. That's how it is today and that's how it was 2,600 years ago in Crete and things, things don't change on this score, you know. Let's not be overly sophisticated about it. Anyway, so that's my favorite way to share God and this is why we make such a big deal about discipleship questions at Blue Water. We have those five discipleship questions. If you're brand new, ask somebody after service. Uh, they should be able to ask you some provocative questions. The first one is, hey, what's God doing in your life? What's God been doing in your life? What's God been saying to you recently? I like to ask that question even of atheists, even of people who are not worshipers or followers. What's God been saying to you recently? What? Because I'm, I'm certain God has been saying something and you can ask it a different way. Well, I mean, what do you feel is really meaningful in life? It gets you to the same place eventually, that question. What I'm, what I'm saying with that question is, what are the, what's the evidence of God in your story? I'm sure there is some. I'm sure there is some because God has been God all along. You know, it's not your perspective that's eternal. Uh, it's its presence in your life until I finally get to a point where I can say, can you not see that God has been calling you all along? I'm not, I'm not really bringing you something new with Jesus. I'm just filling in something you've kind of known all along. That's what I'm doing when I preach Jesus. 
uh, in the way of life called Christianity, or the devotion to Jesus as master and, and Lord, as guide in life, is simply meant to demonstrate the purpose that God has had since the very beginning. You know, in some ways, Christianity is not an original thing. It's been around since Genesis. It's just, you know, making God master and using Jesus as the ultimate revelation, God with a face, God with us, a God that we can hug and follow. That's what, that's, that's what that is. And I like to get people to a point where I can say, I mean, do you get it now? Do you get it that God's been calling you all along? Okay, then. Are you ready to accept God on his terms? Do you insist on having an altar to an unknown God? Or are you getting ready, are, are you ready to get to know God? And that's the invitation that Jesus makes. You ready to get to know God? You ready to get specific about it and not to be fuzzy-headed and foggy-hearted? Jesus represents God's terms. And they're pretty powerful, pretty loving, pretty generous terms. I mean, Jesus is an awesome guy. Nobody hates him. You could totally disbelieve in God and still think that Jesus is really cool. He's better than we think, God. He's better than we think. He is Lord. He does demand a response. But ultimately, he's not as stressful as you might think. Come to me, all who are weary, heavy laden. Jesus says, I'll give you peace. I'll give you rest. I'll sort it out for you. Jesus is the God that we literally tried to kill and put in a tomb, just like Epimenides wrote about. He's the guy that we literally did it to. God pops back, and God will keep popping back up in your life until you accept him on his terms. Always. Different ways you may have tried to bury God, maybe by pretending that he didn't exist, or maybe you've tried to bury God by trying to pretend that he's not looking at this part in your life which you've reserved to yourself or something like that. You know, the different ways we try to bury God. He's going to keep popping back up. You can't keep the man down, even when he is a man. So a lot of us have been in that position, and maybe some of you are there today. Maybe, maybe you've been drawn here to this decrepit gym with all of these weird and diverse people. Again, look to your left and right. Uh, maybe you've been drawn here because you've sensed in this place something ancient and universal, something that is familiar to you, even though it's a little bit new, um, because whether, you're, whether you've always been in touch with it or not, you've kind of been experiencing God all along. You've sensed God calling you. you. You've known that there was something there. You had this weird little space in your life, sort of an altar to an unknown God or a God that you weren't quite willing to define because that would be scary. You knew something was supposed to be there. You just didn't know what. Maybe you've encountered a church before uh, Blue Water and thought, well, I mean, this can't be all there is to it, and you're certainly right because there's nothing universal about the way that we do things. There's just something universal about the God that we're trying to follow. Church is just a tool. Church is just a community of faith and progress. It's a bringing together 
behind this guy, Jesus, who is God on his own terms. We're a community of purpose in that sense. And it's kind of easy to sort of reserve a little space for something sort of like God that you don't have to deal with too much. It's easy to have an altar to an unknown God in your life. It's harder and way more vital to have a real God in your life. It's easy to have a God that you don't know. It's much, much harder and way more wonderful to have a God that you do know, a God that you treat like he's a God, you know? It's harder, it is, it is. Um, but it's really what humanity has wanted all along for the thousands of years that we've been able to record the story. It's what we've been craving. At the end of the account of the fall, there's one line in Genesis that I've always loved. It said, and then men began calling on the name of God that when the stuff hit the fan and the dust finally settled, what humanity started doing at the very beginning was calling out for God. Wait, we miss you. Wait, what happened? I think every soul does that. It's easy and kind of cool to have an altar to an unknown God. It's harder and way better to get to know God. So I think we'll end this morning with just, you know, just that question. As we started the sermon with the question, and we'll end the sermon with the question. Um, are, uh, are you willing uh, today to make a decision to get to know God? Uh, he already knows you. He's already been active in your life. He's been calling you for some time. Uh, you may see his fingerprints over any number of your experiences. But, you know, the question is, are you really to treat, willing to treat God as God, to make God known and to have an altar there that's real and specific?